From the high desert in Far East West Texas, this is the world's fastest growing sports media podcast with that sports TV ratings. Hi, I'm Robert Seidman, and yes, finally a new podcast. I am testing out a new preamp to see if I can improve the audio quality a little, and here to help me out is my friend Jim Miller, who you may know as best-selling author James Andrew Miller from his books on Saturday Night Live, ESPN, and the CAA Agency. And uh, Jim also does the great Origins podcast with Cadence 13. Jim, welcome back to the world's fastest growing sports media podcast with that sports TV rating. Thanks for having me. Jim, you know I've been on a big reading kick for the past several years, mostly via audiobooks, and in the process I've taken recommendations from other people and uh, even the AIs uh, that recommend material based on other stuff I've read. And as a result, I've wound up reading a lot of histories and biographies that I otherwise might not have. And uh, one of the great writers I stumbled onto in the process was Robert Caro, who is famous for his books on Lyndon Johnson and Robert Moses, who shaped the landscape of New York City. Uh, Mr. Caro recently released a new book called Working, and it's not really a memoir. He still hopes to write one someday, but uh, he gets into his writing approach and process. And uh, I'd been through maybe hundreds of books by the time I got to Caro, but uh, there's just so much detail in Caro's books that it sort of nicks my binge mode. I felt like I needed to slow down and really kind of soak it in. And in working, he gets into the thing that would overwhelm me the most, all the work. Uh, There were over 30 million documents in the LBJ library. And uh, that's certainly something that would have scared me off, but uh, he dug right in. And I really love working. And I know you have a uh, reverence for Caro. And I'm really curious about how Caro or other writers' processes uh, influenced you and your books on Saturday Night Live, ESPN, and CAA. Well, I mean, look, Robert Caro's in a class by himself, um, and he's been um, not only you know one of my favorite reads. I have this tradition that when the LBJ books come out, I um, I clear the decks, and I and I literally mean, I mean, for the last one, I literally cleared the deck and didn't schedule anything for. Um, I think it was like I don't know, maybe a day. And I read the I read the book nonstop. I, I have to I have to do that when the books come out. Or uh, it's just he's he's just so important to me. And I just you know I love his writing and I love his subject matter. And so I think that one of the things that um, happened with working, although portions of it had been released in in um, either magazine articles or or elsewhere, um, it was just nice. It, it was so short and it was just great to just escape and, uh, and sit down and read it. But I think that, you know, one of the things that happened for him, and I knew about it um, when he was doing the Robert Moses book, was that they had basically said Robert Moses had sent word down to his minions that um, this book was not to happen. And as a result, they, they basically made a point of telling, you know, Robert that they weren't going to cooperate, that no one was going to cooperate, that he wasn't going to have access to anything. And... And yet he kind of pushed on, and I'm far from, you know, operating at a Robert Carroll level, but it did remind me of, uh, you know, I, I signed the book contract for the ESPN book and then, and then had a meeting with ESPN, and George Bodenheimer, who was then president of ESPN, looked at me and said, yeah, we're not, we're, we're not going to cooperate. And it's that sinking feeling like, well, of course, you know, that's their right. And yet at the same time, you've already, right. <laughs> you know, you've already signed a contract and uh, it's like uh, all of a sudden you're, 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 you're looking up and you're trying to climb Everest in a cold day in your shorts. 
So I think that, you know, at that particular moment, um, in answer to your question, Robert Carr was incredibly important to me because just never thought of, uh, never thought of, uh, of not doing it. And, um, and, you know, was, was pleased that eventually, uh, you know, um, ESPN wound up changing yeah, so, their minds. You know, Carol in working, he talks about how, in, in a way, you know, that the that the work kind of did him, that he had to do it. Like, it was just something in him that he that he had to get out of him. Uh, do, do you experience that at all in your books? I mean, is, 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 is the, like, I think, I think you did in Saturday Night Live for sure, but, but, but do you, do you generally have that kind of oomph? Um, I think you have to. I think you have to. I mean, I, I, when people, you know, throw out ideas for books or to me or whatever, they think, what about this? What about this? I, I often say, you know, that, that sounds like a book I can date, but not marry. And I think that, you know, one of the things that, um, happens with these big lists, I mean, yeah, I guess my books take about three, three and a half years, nothing compared to Caro's, but you, you have to have that. You have to have that passion. You have to, you have to be addicted to it. Um, you know, every single day that I'm working on a book, I'm thinking about it every 90 seconds, um, even when I'm not working on it. And you have to have that addiction to it. And it's almost like a OCD type of thing. And, and that's the only way that, um, you know, at least the only way that I know how to do it. And I think there's something else that's really instructive about Carol, which is that, um, so much of what a book ultimately becomes is a function of not just an outline that you write at the beginning or what you write in a book proposal, but it's about the journey when you're reporting and writing on the book. And one of the things that he does in working is he gives some vivid examples of that, particularly um, when you talk about farmers who lives were totally disrupted by Robert Moses' decision to, you know, throw a highway right. in between their farms or the sad irons chapter of volume one of the LBJ biography. And I think that, you know, did he set out to talk about the fabric of a, of a, of a, of the daily life of, of women in East Texas and how incredibly hard it was at that time because of the lack of electricity and because of, you know, the way that they had to conduct their lives. No, but he found it, you know, through his reporting. And I think that there are times when you just all of a sudden come upon something and you just, you just become um, so caught up by it that you, you know, you just feel like you need to go deeper. I, I often compare the original outline of a book to what the book becomes you know, have become. And I think that sometimes um, things that, uh, you know, before the reporting really starts, things that you thought were really big and important and almost a requirement to, to cover, um, they, they wind up being l less so because either, in my case, they've been reported to death. And so I feel like unless I've uncovered something totally new, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. I'm going to make sure the, the reader has it um, because it's important in terms of context. But other times there are things that, I mean, I remember one time in the SNL book, I was talking with Bill Murray, and he just, in the middle of like a sentence, 
mentioned like you know just this 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 kind of like random disconnected um thought and that that thought um almost you know if it was on a page it would have been in parentheses that thought led me down an entirely different path and you know wound up being just really you know really meaningful and i think that um and that's that to me is like the fun that's like the juice that's the oxygen uh, of of the process i mean that's that's about reporting that's about making sure you're writing you know asking the right questions to get to get the best answers and even answers that you know if you're if you're too tied to getting a specific answer for a specific place in an outline then all you're doing really is feeding your original thoughts and one of the things that is so incredible about Robert Caro is that he really lets his reporting um, guide the way and both in a practical and I would say almost a emotional slash ethical way because um, one of the things that he does um, particularly let's say with the East Texas experience uh, he felt almost obligated to tell the story then of these women and how their lives hey, were being hey, conducted. Hey, Jim, will you, will and, you just explain a little bit, tell the yeah. story about how he moved there with his wife, uh, you know, and actually lived there to, so that the people would start to trust him and talk to him? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that that decision alone, when Robert Caro decided to write the, um, the first volume uh, of, of the LBJ biography, um, you know, he could have easily done it from New York City, and Lord knows there are other people who have written biographies of Lyndon Johnson, who didn't wind up moving to East Texas and to really become part of that world down there. Um, this brings up a side aspect of Robert Caro's life, which I think is, at least for me, really important. Um, Warren Buffett once said that one of the most important decisions you make about your professional life, if not the most professional, if not the most important decision, is who you marry. And Robert Caro, to me, is living proof of that because the relationship that he has with his wife, um, uh, I think it's fair to say that if he hadn't married her and married somebody else who um, wasn't so supportive and wasn't so equal to the challenges that his professional life presented, um, we wouldn't yeah, have she, these books. I mean, she's, she's and so, uh, uh, a chief contributor to the research. Well, it's not only that. It's that one of the things that people who read working will find out is, you know, when you write a book like that, and it's going to take years and years, and you have this measly advance. His his advance for the power broker was five thousand dollars, and he got twenty five hundred when he signed. And he thought that he could originally, you know, originally he thought that he could continue to work at Newsday, and quickly figured out that wasn't going to happen. Well, eventually figured out, and so. The idea that, I mean, his wife made the decision that they would have to sell their house. And he could have been married to somebody who, you know, who was going to say to him, listen, um, this dog is not going to hunt. You, 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 can, you can write this book in your spare time, but you're not leaving any job. We're not selling any house. And they went through incredible, incredibly difficult times financially. And yet... There she was, you know, to support him. And it not only wound up being um, that kind of support, but 
he actually he was actually playing basketball one time and hurt right. his back and he was he wound up being bedridden so <laughs> he would send her on research missions yep. for the power broker and you know she'd be calling from like a payphone and i mean just think about that uh, i think that there's all kinds of levels of support in a marriage and um you know we should say obviously that there are men who are supporting women too uh, in their endeavors but i think that this portrait this marriage uh, the portrait of this marriage is an extraordinary one and i i think it's just you know it's just incredible to uh to 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 read about and to and to think about you know if she had been um you know not not as supportive absolutely i mean so honestly like Oh, you know me a little bit. I don't think you could talk me into moving to the whole country for like two days. I mean, that's a big ask. And uh, I think they did that for, for well, at least a year. Was it several years? Yeah, but here's the point. Um, he was so right about it because by moving there, that's how he started to get the trust of those people who lived there. And he started to see for himself, you know, the disparity between what life was like then and now and, and, and then. And so he was able to open up a much wider, um, you know, source of inf- sources of information. And, and it's just, that's the stuff that makes his books so incredible. I mean, you, you don't, you don't necessarily think, okay, we're going to, we're going to write a biography of Lyndon Johnson and, you know, there's going to be countless pages about, electricity or the lack of electricity and what life was like before that um you know it may have been just a paragraph in another person's biography but he moves down there he understands it and so he was able to literally chronicle the the difference that lyndon johnson's um, political acumen brought to people's lives down there you you, you've been at this a while and uh and you go down the road of uh, the stuff like you talked about with espn where you're you're not able or you're you're maybe not going to be able to get the information that you want how how do you plow forward from there what do you do i think you 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 basically i mean it's not a it's not a particularly sophisticated strategy but i think that um it was something that he did with robert moses and something i did with espn which is that you wind up taking what you can get and where you and that means wherever you can get it and so um, given the fact that I wasn't allowed to go on campus at ESPN and interview current employees, I started interviewing previous employees. And uh, specifically, my goal was to interview every past president of ESPN and then say to George Bodenheimer, listen, you're the only one that I haven't interviewed um, and then hopefully have him say, okay, and then once I had him, then he would open it up. And that's exactly what happened. Um, you know, thanks to Chet Simmons, who I got to speak with, um, you know, up, up until like two months before his death, and I was so, you know, delighted that he wanted to speak with me, and we had great conversations. And Bill Grimes and Roger Werner and, of course, Steve Bornstein, um, and Bill Rasmussen, the the original yep. founder of ESPN, so and and also Stu, Stu Evie, who was uh, the financier from Getty. So I had all those people, um, and and started 
started interviewing a lot of former producers there and former executives and, and really try to, you know, go outside in. I mean, there are times uh, with SNL, um, it was great because Lauren was on board from the beginning, and so you could go inside out. And um, the fact that Lauren was on board was, um, I would say, not winded. My winded our backs because I worked on that with Tommy. But um, I would say hurricane <laughs> because uh, as soon as, some, as soon as somebody said, "Oh, wait, oh, Lauren's talk," okay, fine. I mean, they would invariably call Lauren's office and say, um, "You know, got this call, and uh, do, do you want to, um, you know, is it okay if we speak?" But but I think that uh, ESPN was exactly the opposite, and. I think John Walsh was, um, you know, incredibly helpful inside uh, ESPN, uh, nudging George, and so was John Skipper, toward, um, you know, toward cooperating, and um, and so that was, uh, you know, that was a big help. But I think that, you know, eventually Robert Carroll, forget about me, eventually Robert Carroll got a series of interviews with Robert Moses, and. Um, he talked specifically in working about one session that started at 9.30 in the morning and um, ended in the evening. And the interesting thing about that is, you know, one might be tempted to say, oh, my gosh, I can't believe, I wonder what questions he asked and what the list of questions he had and how he prioritized the questions and everything else. And it turns out that Moses, um, particularly given his ego and uh, his feelings of supremacy, uh, it's not surprising to hear that so much for, for Robert Carra asking him questions and then answering. They were often um, monologues, as Carra described yeah. them. And so you're just kind of like holding on for dear life and making sure you get every word and seeing where it goes. But interestingly enough, one of the things that also happened was Carra, through research, was able to find out some things that you know, had been secret before, and Moses had clearly not wanted anybody to know about it. And when Carol asked him a question that kind of revealed that he had this information, Moses shut him down and said, yeah, I'm sorry, we're not going to be able to uh, continue today. And then every single attempt to re-engage was met with, uh, with a no. And so... You know, look, the good news is, and this is a smart thing, too, um, which I've done many times, uh, you know, you have to you have to sequence, you have to think about, um, plot out almost what you want from somebody and and how to do it. Um, and it's that's not being manipulative. I think it's just being smart about your comfort, establishing a comfort level with that person, making sure that you get you know, certain things that that person would want to speak about anyway, and and then saving some thing, other things, you know, for later on. Uh, I don't know what the power broker would have been um, without those sit-downs, because I think Robert Carroll got you know, enormous insight into uh, Moses, not just, you know, what he did, but the kind of man he was from those sessions, and they're just irreplaceable. So I'm glad that he saved that question to to uh to when he did absolutely yeah 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 i mean and he he spoke he speaks about that in the book about you know he tried to he tried to hold that off for as long as he could but then he couldn't hold off any longer right i mean you know at some point it's incumbent upon you to 
to, to, to ask those questions because you, you need to be on the record as having given them an opportunity to talk about it and to make sure that um, there aren't any, any conflicting facts or anything that happened that that person knows about that you may not have found in your reporting. And that has happened to me, you know, several times. Um, and it's, it's really important because you need, I mean, it's not only under the rubric of fact checking, it's more just about, you know, digging deeper into their reporting and making sure that you have the complete picture, not just verifying one fact that you've already gotten. Off on a little bit of a tangent on, on the, uh, on the power broker, like a few people have mentioned to me, uh, you know, asking the question, some form of the question, like, why was this never made into an HBO series? And uh, sometimes I wonder about that, and particularly with the topics in the book and the sort of the timeliness with the stuff that's still going on in New York today. Uh, I do wonder, like, why some of those issues aren't interesting enough to be made into a dramatic TV series. It seems like they would be. I think I think so. I, I think that sometimes I mean, look, you could certainly I, I wouldn't do it. You know, it's funny. And just thinking like as a development executive for a moment, I don't know if I would do it in terms of Moses. What I would do is I would do a miniseries that had Robert Caro <laughs> at the forefront and, and do the miniseries on his journey to do the book. And to really, I mean, look, there's personal drama in terms of the way that they had to, you know, totally give up their lifestyle and sell their house and, I mean, he's like begging for office space and tiny office space at that and all these little places. And there's this idea of being shut down by the most powerful people in the city and in the state. And, you know, you're, you've signed this contract, you've cast a check, and now they told you, you know, they're not going to let it happen. And, and then that journey. And, I mean, I think it's a great, juicy role for, for an actor and an actress, uh, because, uh, you know, his wife is so important to the story and she plays such a, I mean, she plays such a pivotal role and there is a really great, you know, there's a great marriage at the forefront of that. Um, I so, feel like I need to cut this know, out I, on the podcast cause like, I don't know if I want, I, I want you to hold on to this idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, no, don't cut it out. Cause maybe somebody will hear it and want to do uh, it. I, you know, I, I, um, I think, uh, so you, you have a, I mean, so I, I love Robert Caro's work, but I mean, you just have a, as a writer, you have a, a, a lot of passion for, uh, for, for the quality in ways that, that I can't, because I haven't, I haven't gone through the experience of ever writing a book, but, uh, um, have you, well, you know, the thing is, have, I, I just wanted to ask, have you, have you given any consideration to, uh, while he's still alive, maybe being his biographer? Oh my gosh. I, I, uh, no, I'd never thought about that. I don't know if I'm, uh, I, I don't know if he would ever want that or anything like that, but look, I, I know think he wouldn't, I think he wouldn't, in, but, uh, but that doesn't yeah, mean it shouldn't be done. Right. Right. Um, kind of hit him with his own medicine, but I, I have respect him too much for that. And I think that there's one of the things that I love about the world of Robert Caro is so many, so many people from disparate, you know, parts of uh, uh, of the world, and uh, you know, feel this way. I mean, even like Conan O'Brien is. You know, you, you might not think, you might not think Conan O'Brien uh, would have Robert Caro as one of his you know, poster childs and, you know, but he's, he recently interviewed Robert Carroll, which was a big thrill for him. And it was, you know, something that he said was so special and important in his life because he loves him so much. And I think that one, and so 
if you really want to kind of deconstruct it and think about, I mean, there are other biographers and um, there are other great writers out there. So what is, at least for me, particularly unique about Robert Caro is I, I think that, you know, this idea that, I mean, he's so fully committed to it. It doesn't matter about deadlines. It doesn't matter that he has to move to East Texas or Vietnam um, as he's working on this final biography of LBJ. He's going to do, you know that this is a man who's going to do everything that is required to deliver to you the absolute best, most comprehensive, most entertaining, uh, you know, historically accurate uh, biography. And I think that's, you know, and it's going to be, by the way, a pleasure to read. Um, But I think there's something else, which I think when I was reading Working Now, it was interesting in, in in our kind of current context. And I mean this devoid of any kind of political orthodoxies. But what Robert Caro does is just real. There's not, this is not like about fake news. This is not about an agenda. This is not about tilting things in a certain way so you can then make a specious argument or try and foster, you know, some sort of um, overt or covert agenda. It's just, it's magical to, to, to kind of, you know, read something and you just know that it's exquisitely sourced and I, I just, you know, there's no, there's just no other elements to it. It's so, I mean, I hate to use the word pure, but it's just, it, there's just a, a, such a great feeling, um, particularly in our current day, that there's just, there's just, there's no other agenda out there other than to, to make sure that this is like the most accurate and the most comprehensive, uh, you know, take on this subject that's ever been done. And um, I think that's another kind of powerful way in which those of us who are Carol freaks get, um, you know, addicted to him. Yeah. So um, I have not read all of his books yet. I still haven't read The Passage of Power. Um, but uh, I will strongly recommend all of his books that I have read. And uh, the top two for me would be uh, the the volume from Lyndon, the years of Lyndon Johnson. I think it was the third volume called Master of the Senate, which is tremendous. And then, of course, The Power Broker. Do you, do you as, a, as a Caro freak, do you have a favorite? Well, I worked in the Senate. Um, and believe it or not, I, had a, I was a speechwriter, and I had a little hideaway. I believe it. Office for when I had to go and just really concentrate and write speeches, and it turned out to be um, uh, one of Lyndon Johnson's many hideaways that he had in the Capitol. And uh, so I couldn't wait to read Master of the Senate, and it was exquisite. I will say, if there's anybody listening that has never read anything of Robert Caro's, um, just to pick up volume two, which was called Means of Ascent. And just read the prologue. Uh, I mean, I know that these books are deep dives and, and can sometimes be a little intimidating to people um, because of their length. But the prologue to Means of Ascent is um, he jumps ahead of time. And uh, I'll just quickly, if you I don't mind, go if, for it. If it's okay, I'll just quickly, quickly describe it for a moment. Um, he talks about the civil rights movement. And, you know, one of the things that was always somewhat of a paradox, but also just made it so incredibly uh, arresting, was that Lyndon Johnson was a Southerner and was 
you know, part of a Southern tradition in the Senate that had stood in the way of civil rights advancements for, for, for decades. And he talks about that, and then he talks about the protests that were going on, and then he boils it down to one night when, um, when he, uh, Lyndon Johnson addressed the nation through a joint session of Congress. And another author would have just done that. Instead, Caro's writing, and now he brings it into the traditions of music and song in the civil rights movement, and not surprisingly, um, meets up with We Shall Overcome, which was, uh, you know, the, the hallmark song um, at that time. And, and so he talks about all of that. And again, it's just like going to East Texas and electricity or, you know, I mean, he just, the verisimilitude that he creates and the research that he does. And so he's talking about that tradition of that song and its importance to African-Americans at that time in the civil rights movement. And then we cut back to the speech. And in the speech that Lyndon Johnson delivers to the joint session of Congress is the words, we shall overcome. And he also, in a cinematic way, talks about when Johnson's car was leaving that night to go from the White House to the Capitol, that there were protesters outside the White House, and they were protesting, you know, they were railing against him and that he hadn't done enough for civil rights. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I almost hate that I'm doing this because uh, it just, it's so beautiful the way he does it, but just in case somebody doesn't read it, then, and what he does then is he talks about after he had used the words, we shall overcome in the speech, and he talks about Martin Luther King watching the speech and a tear coming to his eyes when he hears those words. He also talks about Lyndon Johnson in the limousine, driving back to the White House, going through the White House gates with not one protester there. And it's just this magical, I mean, that's like, that's, that's the full-blown Carol because it, it's, it's about history, it's about individuals, it's about uh, social history and, you know, our, uh, what really, I mean, our cultural history. And, and then it's all done in this beautifully organic way and written so perfectly that, you know, I think I remember the first time that I read it, uh, I, you know, I sat down to read the book and I was, couldn't wait to read the book. And I read the prologue and then I wound up going back and reading it two more times before I continued on because it just was, it, it was so marvelous and it was so intense and it was so beautifully done that I, I just, you know, I mean, I'm sure I knew that the rest of the, the book would be, um, you know, great, but I just, I just couldn't resist going back and reading it two more times at that, at that moment. Yeah, it's, it's, and I run into this in, and in probably several of even Caro's books where, you know, the intros are kind of standalone essays onto themselves that, uh, that I can recommend, like like if you if you check out Means of Ascent from the library, just to read the uh, the introduction and preamble, it's worth it, just for that. Yes, and and I will say that um, maybe one day if you want to, uh, you know, um, talk about William Manchester. There, the same thing goes for him in the um, alone in the first volume. In the well, there's in the first volume of the Churchill. 
uh, I wrote about the um, the Manchester volumes, the, the Churchill biography for the New York Times Magazine, and it was a it was a great piece to to, to write about. Quick editor's note, if you're still listening to this, you're probably very interested in the writing and publishing world, so I highly recommend Jim's great piece in the New York Times Magazine about the fan who helped uh, finish the uh, final volume of William Manchester's biography on Churchill. Google a problem of Churchillian proportions, and the article should come up. But in the first volume, he talks about Dunkirk, and it's amazing. And in the second volume in the preamble, he talks about... Churchill's uh, somewhat solitary life when he was uh, detached from power. And so you get a real sense of, uh, you know, when he became prime minister, what he had been going through beforehand. And it's in that passage, those pages alone would be, uh, you know, a fantastic book. Yeah. Um, so just can't can't get enough of that. Stuff. Yeah, I, I agree. The, 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 the preamble, um, the, the series is, I believe, called The Last Lion. Uh, uh, but the Manchester's yep. Manchester's books on Churchill the fr- in the first two volumes the preambles are extraordinary. Um, absolutely, and he didn't uh, he didn't live long enough to finish it. But thank God uh, they were able to pull it off with Paul Reed, and that's what I that's what that journey of finishing the that's what I had uh, written about. So before I get you out of here, Jim, is there is there anything going on since we didn't talk about sports media at all on the, the night after the NFL draft? Is there anything going on in the world of sports media that, that you feel like chiming in on, or are you good? Well, I mean, look, the only thing I, you know, we're speaking the day after the NFL draft, which, you know, ABC did and uh, Robin Roberts is a part of. And I think it was two years ago when I mentioned to you, and uh, I think I did it with Dice on his podcast too, that I thought ABC would be going for an NFL package and uh, people thought I was smoking crack, but um, I'm going to still stand by. Well, it's it, all the rage now. Everybody, th- everybody thinks. So I think the, I think the, the question is, is will they steal someone else's package, which you think they had at least once at one point, I don't know. It, it was, it's, it's been a while. At one point you thought they might uh, try to get someone else's package. I think the NFL will carve out a separate package for ABC is my guess. Well, Just to make more money. I mean, so everybody's happy. <laughs> Um, that's a lot of packages. It is a lot of packages, and but remember, those guys are really good with the uh, with the Ginzu knife, the NFL. Well, hmm, I don't know. I mean, look, I'll, I'll just play devil's advocate for a second because so they created a new package on Thursday night, and you know for the, I mean it's gotten better now, but for the first couple of years after Thursday night, ESPN was paying 1.9 billion dollars a year plus 100 million if they got the wild card um, for the fourth worst schedule. Remember something, uh, you know, this idea that, you know, there's just the Ginzu knife and coming up with all these packages and stuff. There aren't enough great teams. When you and I were growing up, every, every team had, you know, four or five stars and even teams that were at the bottom, you know, could, I I, I just, I don't think that there's, I'm, I'm not sure that there's enough great product out there to, Particularly, we're not talking about Thursday Night Amazon or something. We're talking about we're talking about ABC, a network that would be paying tons of money. If maybe I'm maybe not the, maybe not a full maybe not a full sixteen game schedule, but you know, I was thinking at least. Yeah, eight. I mean, look, if I, if I'm you know if I'm any of those people thinking about a package, the first thing I want to think about is how is Howard Katz, the NFL scheduler and one of the great magicians of all times, going to be able to deliver for me. Um, because 
there are certain things that we just know that the NBC Sunday night schedule, if it were to stay this way, you know, they're always going to get certain things. And the CBS Sunday afternoon schedule and the Fox yep. Sunday afternoon schedule. I mean, it's like at some point, um, you know, you just you just run out of good games. And uh, so then it then it just becomes a question of, well, do you want to be in the NFL because you want to be in the NFL and you want to say that you're in the NFL and you're willing, you know, to roll the dice that you're going to get some, you know, interesting games from time to time? Or are you going to, you know, be wary of the fact that um, if they were to carve out another package, given, let's just say the equation stays the same right now, given the dynamics of, uh, of the schedule right now and how many people are above you on the food chain, I mean, you know, what kind of, what kind of games are you willing to live with? Yeah, I think the, uh, the, the balancing act is can, can the NFL do it and actually make everyone think that they're happy for at least five minutes. And I don't know. I mean, so I really don't know if that's the case, but my sense is that's what they're going to try. Yeah. Well, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's going to fly because people haven't been, people haven't been that happy. Yeah. There's, there's Uh, not enough Dallas Cowboys to go around, unfortunately. Some, Some people, at least some people haven't been happy. So, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens with that, but we're getting close. And I, and I expect that sooner rather than later, we're going to be hearing about the collapsing of the window because technically, if you look at the calendar, ESPN and Monday night are up first. Right. And so I would expect the league is going to just say, hey, we're going to just create one large window for everything. And, um, and, um, and, and, and push it up so that it happens, say, inside of the next year instead of a little bit after? I'm not sure whether they'll push it up or push back that or just make it a wider range. I'm not, I'm not sure about that, but I... I, I can't imagine it being two separate chunks. Gotcha, gotcha. It's it's definitely going to be interesting to watch what happens. So, uh, so do, do you you do agree though that that there is low hanging fruit for Disney with uh, ABC's affiliate fees? Some low hanging fruit, maybe. Um, sure. I mean, look, you know, years ago, um, you know, when people were giving up on on broadcast television. Uh, Les Moonves talked about his undying faith in it, and uh, boy, the retrans fees and the fees that he got—you yeah. um, know—it's just pretty amazing. And I think that uh, I don't think we're, you know, at that point where we're talking about the death of broadcast. Uh, I, I I don't think we are either, but I don't think we are mostly because of sports at this point. Right. No, exactly. Listen, remember something in 1990 in the Cap City deal when disney bought cap cities the abc television network was was basically valued it wasn't valued at zero but it wasn't you know a a big part of it right. i mean that right. you know that that huge paradigm shift that already started has already started decades ago uh any thoughts on on peyton manning finally not being in the monday night football booth He's a smart man you you were you were the first guy who said something i think it was you first who with why would i want to do that when tony romo just did what he did oh uh, absolutely absolutely i mean there's there's just uh, there's no upside there's, there's just no upside i agree jim miller a pleasure as always thanks for having me